Made for More is a series to help you discover Christ and unfold the way he desires us to live our lives. This young adult series has the next generation of Catholic in mind, discussing the importance of identity, knowing the Lord's will in our life, and living with heaven in mind. This series features local and national speakers, including Nathaniel Beniversi of Exodus 90, Father Patrick Briscoe from the God's Planning Podcast, and Tulsa's very own Father Vince Fernandez, and so many more to come. So if you could share, like, subscribe, and most importantly, go out and make disciples. From us here at the Diocese of Tulsa Communications Office, we thank you. Father, made in your image, we bear the tremendous weight of your dignity and glory. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Help us to become all that you call us to be. Amen. Amen. So it's true that we are creatures who bear a tremendous dignity because of God's love for us and because God has created us. He is our Father. But I think that we experience it as a challenge to live up to that dignity that is ours from our creation. In our fallen nature, the vice of lust is strong and makes it hard for us to live up to our dignity. But conquering all of this, our God is strong and patient and ready to lend powerful help to us so that we can fulfill the dignity that is ours some people have been so harmed by this promiscuous culture that they feel like for them it is too late. But ours is a God of just in time. For him there is no such thing as too late. When Jesus was taken down from the cross, people thought it was too late. But when he rose on the third day, we learned that it was just in time. And he is ready to begin us anew at every moment. We have only to turn to him to listen and let him teach us how to move forward. How to, as he told the woman caught in adultery, how to sin no more. But how did we get here? No matter what kind of sexual attraction we might experience, what is the sure path for forward. So let's begin these reflections back at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. In the second chapter of the book of Genesis, after God has created everything on earth, he creates the man and the woman and he creates a garden for them to live in. And in the middle of the garden, he planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave them the instruction that everything in the garden was for them, but that they must not eat of the fruit of this tree, because if they did, they would die. This was information, not a threat. It's like the skull and crossbones warning sign that we might put on a powerful electrical transformer. The man and the woman were naked, 
but they were unashamed because as yet they were completely obedient to God. But all that changes in the third chapter. A talking snake who Eve has never met before tells her a lie about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she eats the fruit and gives it to Adam and he eats of it as well. So here's a tip. If you find yourself talking to a snake who you've never met before, <laughs> don't listen to him because he's up to no good. Their eyes are opened. This is a way of saying that they lose their innocence. Now they know of their nakedness. So they cover themselves with fig leaves and hide from God when he comes to visit them in the garden. Adam explains to God why they hid. He says, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asks the most amazing question. He asks Adam, who told you that you were naked? It's an amazing question. They were created naked. They've always been naked, but they did not know it. God knows because of the fact that Adam says we were naked. God knows, okay, something has happened. When you're naked without shame, it's because you have nothing to hide. And part of the experience of the fall is that suddenly we have something to hide. Because of sin, something has changed, and now they're trying to hide from each other and also from God. The creation account in Genesis is written against a backdrop of all kinds of pagan stories and ideas about how the world was created and who the gods are that rule the universe. And against these accounts, Genesis tells the true story that there is only one God. And the God that exists creates everything from nothing, including us, and he creates out of love for us. And he creates with order and intelligibility. Included in this creation is the truth that our sexual nature is a given and it is good. We are created male and female for a purpose and our dignity is found in being God's beloved and living in union with this purpose. What is attractive about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that it seems to allow you to decide what is good and evil for yourself. This is what the devil's lie is to Eve. It's very subtle, and it insinuates that God is keeping something from her that she should have, and that is why he does not want them to eat of the tree. But the ability to name things as good and evil does not come from eating the fruit of the tree. 
it comes from having a divine nature, from being the creator. And Adam and Eve do not have a divine nature. They are creatures. And when a creature tries to do that which requires divinity, like name things as good and evil, the things so named don't change. But the creature tries to live as if they did and suffers the harm that comes from living apart from the true nature of things. This is what God was trying to save them from. Marriage and family are precisely the purpose God had in mind when he created the human race as male and female, different from each other, but different in a way that allows them to combine as one flesh in a lifelong union that is free and fruitful and faithful. But if because of the fruit of original sin, we adopt an attitude as an individual or as a culture that we can decide for ourselves what sexuality is for and what will be good about it or bad about it, then we will act according to what we decide, but the nature and the dignity of our sexual nature will stay as God created it. But now using it in a manner contrary to its nature and dignity, we will experience and do experience the harm that comes from that misuse. This is why the Catechism spends 55 paragraphs from paragraph 2337 to 2391 teaching the nature and vocation of chastity to everyone and only three paragraphs discussing homosexuality. Chastity is what unites us as brothers and sisters created by the one God no matter what sexual attraction we may experience. The Catechism describes chastity as the successful integration of sexuality within the person and thus the inner unity of man and woman in their bodily and spiritual being. Prior to the fall in the garden, we had this inner unity naturally. We were naked without shame. But now it is something that we must pursue as a path because we find we are sometimes attracted to things that are contrary to our good. This path allows us to understand and use our sexuality in the manner that God intended. Who is the virtue of chastity for? It's for everyone who has a bodily and spiritual being. Do you know anyone who doesn't have a bodily or spiritual being? It's for everyone. How long do we have to live the virtue of chastity? That's a fun question, huh? I think the question has relevance because I think in our culture, people reduce chastity to not having sex and see it as a virtue for the unmarried. In this reductive view, once you're married, sex is, so to speak, legal. It's permitted. 
and thus you don't have to be chaste. But married people are bodily and spiritual beings, most of them, and so chastity is for them and for everyone throughout the whole of our lives. So chastity must mean more than just not having sex. I have a theory about why the culture seems to have so little use for and offers us so little support for living a chaste life. The so-called sexual revolution of the last century was in many ways a reaction against the view that sex is dirty or bad somehow. Some people still think that the church teaches that sex is bad. Some people within the church, I think, still think that the church teaches that sex is bad. The overreaction said that sex is good. It's not bad. Sex is good. But look what happens if you think that sex is merely good. <clears throat> think of, of a list of good things. Friendship is good. Pumpkin spiced lattes are good. Tacos apparently are very good. A high paying and fun job is good. Playing sports with friends is good. Pets are good. Sex is good. But does sex really belong as one more good thing on a list of good things? The culture seems to think so. Things are either bad or good. Sex is not bad, so it must be good. But understanding God's plan from the beginning offers us a new category. Things can be bad or good, or some things are so good that they are sacred. Marriage and family are sacred, and sex belongs to marriage, and in that context, it is sacred. It is a part of the sacrament of matrimony. And things that are sacred are reserved. They're not to be used for ordinary purposes, good though they may be, but for sacred purposes. Sex is sacred when we reserve and use it according to its purpose, and marriage is its purpose. We don't reserve sex because we think it is bad. We don't use sex because we think it is good. We reserve it and use it according to its purpose because we know that it is sacred. What does this mean for persons who are not married yet or who might never marry? If we reduce love to sex, then it seems that we are saying they will not know love. But this is too small a view. The church proposes that God has given us much more, that God wants much more for us. C.S. Lewis wrote a book titled The Four Loves. And in that book, he examines love through the lens of the four types of love in Greek thought. Storge is sort of the most basic level. This is affection. 
This is a love that comes from empathy and familiarity with others. Think here of the love we have for our family, for our co-workers, for people who help us navigate life. Philia is the love of friendship. This is the love that exists between friends who share things in common. Friends are not merely acquaintances, but people that we choose to love and who love us. There may be romantic feelings among friends, but these are sublimated for the sake of the friendship. Eros, or romantic love, is the love that wants to give the beloved everything, including the sexual union, and to receive from the beloved everything. In God's design, it belongs to marriage because it is free, faithful, and fruitful. And finally, agape, or charity, this is the highest love, the greatest love, because it is unconditional. It is the love that God has for us and that we strive to have for God and others because God has loved us first. Any of these other forms of love without agape will leave us wanting. Chastity is the virtue that helps us to order these loves so that we can truly flourish as persons according to our state in life. This is the larger context for understanding the church's teaching regarding persons who experience same-sex attractions. As we have seen, for all people, the use of our sexual faculty is reserved to the sacrament of marriage. And within marriage, sexual intercourse represents a renewal of the free, faithful, and fruitful covenant that the marriage vows created. This means that it is reserved only for one's spouse and is always open to both the unitive dimension of marital love and the procreative dimension of marital love. For all of us, before we are married, or if we never marry, the fruit of chastity is the ability to foster deep and life-giving friendships with God and with others. For persons who experience exclusively same-sex attractions, their experience guided by chastity will lead them also to the love found in friendships with God and with others. This is where the courage apostolate is very helpful. If you've not heard of it, courage is a group of Catholics who experience same-sex attractions and who are committed to helping one another live chaste lives marked by prayer, fellowship, and mutual support. Courage members are guided by caring priest chaplains who offer pastoral care to them, the sacraments of reconciliation, spiritual direction, and the like. Together they pursue the five goals of courage, which were developed by the first courage group in New York City 
in 1980 and still guide all of our meetings and work. The first goal of courage is to live chaste lives in, according, in accordance with the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on homosexuality. The second is to dedicate our entire lives to Christ through service to others, spiritual reading, prayer, meditation, individual spiritual direction, frequent attendance at Mass, and the frequent reception of the sacraments of reconciliation and Holy Eucharist. The third goal is to foster a spirit of fellowship in which we may share with one another our thoughts and experiences and so ensure that no one will have to face the problems of homosexuality alone. The fourth goal is to be mindful of the truth that chaste friendships are not only possible but necessary in a chaste Christian life and to encourage one another in forming and sustaining these friendships. And finally, the fifth goal is to live lives that may serve as good examples to others. When I was at Texas A&M as a campus ministry chaplain, we had a Courage chapter there, and we have one here in the Diocese of Tulsa as well. I have a tremendous respect and admiration for anyone who today strives to live out the life of chastity, and that, of course, is my prayer for everyone here as well. So I'm going to end